We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the Sound as Ever podcast was made, the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, and pay our respects to their ancestors and elders, past, present and future, and through them to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to Sound as Ever, an Australian Music Vault podcast created by music industry, journalism and sound design students at RMIT University. This podcast celebrates iconic pieces of music created by Australians from an array of backgrounds, casting an eye to our country's cultural future. Please be aware this episode contains some strong language and adult themes. You're listening to If This Is The Blues, Why Do I Feel So Green, a song released by Brisbane-based band Regurgitator in the year of 2004 as part of their album Mishmash, an album which was produced as part of the Band in a Bubble project. Framed by this iconic Regurgitator song, this episode of the Sound As Ever podcast will explore the creative merits, failures and ultimate successes of the Band in a Bubble project. Part reality TV, part social experiment, the band did a bubble saw the members of Regurgitator confined in a glass recording studio for three weeks in the centre of Melbourne's Federation Square. They had one objective, record a full album. Individuals could come by and peer into the studio as they worked, or tune into a 24-7 live show on Foxtel's Channel V. Throughout the production of the podcast, we were afforded the opportunity to speak to lead singer Kwan of Regurgitator. You kind of find your, your place in, in the industry you're in, and ours has always been like, don't take yourself too seriously, just have fun with it. Producer Magoo, or Lachlan Gould. All through high school, I'd always have to correct the teachers because they would just instantly see Gould and go G-O-U-L-D. So I constantly went, no, it's G-O-O. So from Goo came Magoo. And band in a bubble event manager and coordinator, Mark Pope. Uh, and I guess you could call me a co-producer. If This Is The Blues, Why Do I Feel So Green represents the core of Regurgitator's band in a bubble project. While it's a typical blues rock song at its core, when contextualised within the album and reflected against the band's other works, this album concluding title epitomises the genre-defying, innovative and often unique characteristics of the unorthodox musical group. Uh, I think musically this song is influenced by um, an old blues track that Led Zeppelin covered it's like written in 1929 and it's, uh, it was when the levy breaks and they, they kind of rocked it up a bit more and had a huge kind of bottom beat underneath it. And I've always loved, I grew up listening to Led Zeppelin and, and teaching myself how to play guitar by listening to Led Zeppelin and, um, and Hendrix and, and that one. I don't really have a lot of respect for the blues in the sense that it's not my cup of tea generally. Um, I'm often quoted as saying that blues is the soundtrack to dementia and my, my drummer particularly likes that quote, it brings it out all the time. If it keeps on raining, love is going to break. If it keeps on raining, love is going to break. And the water gonna come, and I have no place to stay. If it keeps on raining, love is going to break. If it keeps on raining, love is going to break. But, um, <laughs> 
I do like that song and I did like the idea of creating a, a like some sort of poetic thing based about relationships and something a little more serious because a lot of that tunes are very tongue-in-cheek and very kind of crude and it's nice to kind of try different things even though it may not necessarily be taken seriously because you have that I, I find it really difficult to expect to be taken seriously when I do a serious kind of song because I have this kind of backlog of ridiculous lyrics and and you know crude metaphors I've just kind of, you're a little bit pigeonholed as a result of those things that you do in the past. And so when you go to do something a little bit different, I think it gets overlooked or it gets kind of criticized for being a bit kind of uh, contrived or not really real or not. It's, it's so out of character. It doesn't seem right. And I think that, that song probably has a bit of that to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the song is basically just about that feeling you have, uh, when you know your relationship is transitioning and you can't really do anything about it. Led by vocalist and guitarist Quan Yaumans, Regurgitator were born out of Brisbane in the year of 1993. Bold, often rude, and quite energetic, the band thrived in the post-punk landscape of the mid-90s, their second studio album unit reaching certified triple platinum status and winning five ARIA awards. One thing I can tell you with Regurgitator, going back to my A&R days at Warners, there are some bands that you sign with as an A&R guy where you might have some feedback in terms of the songs, might have some suggestions for producers or arrangements or that sort of stuff. With Regurgitator, given the unique and prodigious talents of the band led by Quan Yeoman, one thing you do when you get a band like that is you sign them and then, excuse my friends, you get the fuck out of the way. Mark Pope doesn't exaggerate. Regurgitator seems to have been afforded free reign on their songs. Their catalogue varied with deep, introspective, metaphysical tracks such as Another Beautiful Story. Contrasted by crude, techno anthems such as I Will Lick You Up. The band in a bubble project found its footing in the early 2000s, a half decade characterised by a cultural obsession with reality TV, the advent of online streaming and the early adolescence of social media. When we first came up, the scene would be described as, in my mind, very conservative. A lot of the big bands were like, it just seemed like it was Barnsley and Farnsley and, you know, really conservative era. Thank God. And particularly in Queensland as well, politically, it was a very conservative time. It's sometimes it's those kind of times that really produce interesting acts who are more punk-based, more interested in, in doing something a bit sillier or crazier or, you know, against the grain, which is, I think, how we felt at the time. Lachlan Gould, known professionally as Magoo, is an ARIA-winning Australian producer and music academic. He acted as a regurgitator's primary producer throughout the peak of their career and joined the band during their stint in the bubble. Having witnessed and experienced the bubble firsthand, Lachlan was able to provide us with some great insights into the experience. I think Band in the Bubble probably speaks more to just culture and generally at the time. So the, I think, you know, for me, the internet sort of grew the late 90s, early 2000s. And around the sort of early 2000s, the, the internet and emailing and 
people were beginning to communicate a lot quicker. And through all of that, I guess, reality television was was kind of becoming quite successful. The actual idea for the bubble came up before we did unit. They were trying to think of something different to do before they did unit, a, a way to record it. And the manager said, oh, why don't we do it in a glass bubble in uh, Queen Street Mall in Brisbane? And everyone sort of you know laughed it off. Their, their manager, Paul Curtis, would have lots of wacky ideas and there was many other wacky ideas at the time. Going further back, I was uh, headed up the A&R department, which was responsible for finding and signing Australian artists. And one of the bands that we signed was the band Regurgitator um, out of Brisbane, who went on to have an ARIA award-winning album, multi-platinum album with uh, Unit and all the rest of it, and forged a, a good relationship with Paul Curtis, the band's manager. In 2001, I left Warners, took a year sabbatical, and came back and started producing the ARIA Awards. In that time, I was still doing other projects, and Paul Curtis approached me about this idea he had, and the idea was for the band to record an album in real time in a public space where they eat, sleep, and basically live and work for a period of three weeks, and out of it comes an album. The project itself, um, it evolved uh, over about a year, I think, after the instigation of the idea and saying, like, let's try this, let's get it going. And, and Paul really got the, the thing rolling. So, I mean, we kind of were thinking about what we were going to do in there, how we were going to like proceed, what it would be like to be in there, imagining these things, mind you. And we just thought, you know, it's kind of silly to go into a place like that. I mean, you don't go to record a studio record. You don't go in cold because you're on the clock when you're in a studio. There's a lot of stress to get the things down. You want to be prepared. So you do a lot of pre-production work, which is writing the songs, generally arranging them, practicing them if you get a chance. Although, on a lot of occasions this band never did that like I mean with Superman we went over to Thailand and found this like crazy studio in the middle of the jungle run by the Beatles of Thailand this guy who had sold like 40 million records or something and just created this incredible studio complex in the middle of this poverty stricken area just outside Bangkok and we went in and, and a lot of those songs were written in the morning me writing the lyrics in a closed room while the other guys were putting down backing tracks and stuff like that well you know bass and, and drums so a lot of the stuff was very off the cuff but this one I think we had the fear that we were going to be watched constantly and really would have found it difficult to focus Musicians like to feel sort of safe and cocooned from the outside world rather than being on display. You're preparing the songs to then be put on display. So to, to bring the public into that process of songwriting, I think would be too confronting for the band. They actually had demos, which was a new concept for me and for them. We had a bit of a pre-production meeting, but it was not my normal pre-production thing where I'd normally sit with a band for rehearsals for, for an album project. I might spend a week with the band in rehearsals where you kind of discuss arrangement, tempos, keys, how we're going to record it, etc. It was just more I sent the demos. I probably made some notes that were probably ignored by the band. They, they sort of didn't really have that traditional way of working. So really, it, w- it would have just been, hey, let's let's go in and do this, set up in the bubble and go. And there was not a lot of, we didn't um, trial anything beforehand. How did the room sound? How did the gear work? It was really just get in there and go, which is how we'd done every record beforehand. Did they do it for publicity reasons? 
No, I don't think so. I think it was, uh, I think it was um, again, led by Quan. It was one of those things whereby they like to push boundaries. They like to go beyond the safety of the norm. And in a way, that's where creativity lives, out on the ledge. So they were confident enough in themselves to take on what was, in hindsight, ahead of its time, social experiment because recording changed dramatically over that time due to digital technology and all that sort of stuff. If, well, if it was about publicity, then why did they write a song called I Sucked a Lot of Cock to Get Where I Am? You know, it's like, you know, that they, they tested boundaries and that's what I loved about them. And as I said, signing them was, was a joy because all I had to do was get out of the way and let them do their thing. Looks like we've got a jewel on our hands. It's a jewel. <laughs> Yeah, cool. Yeah, three. Awesome. I think four. That's great. Awesome. There was a song, Shopping Mall Soul, where they decided to get people from outside to do the guitar solo. So there was um, a DI box outside so people could come in, plug their guitar in, and I would use an amp simulator to get a guitar sound in the studio, and we could get people from outside playing on the song. So there's a drum fill, and then you're in. sort of always buoy the team everyone would get a bit sort of excited to be something different so I guess it was those kind of things that kept us going uh, throughout the process and Jabba, Jabba was good at taking the attention away from us uh, well me specifically which was good but yeah, he, he kind of kept an energy happening and, and would be a focus for the people so at times we could get work done because often when you're tired in the studio you might sort of start doing more um, housekeeping tasks. In, in So in a recording, I might need to do a lot of editing where I'm just chopping up performances and arranging it and placing them, etc. things that maybe aren't really that creative. So you give your brain a bit of a rest by doing some sort of menial task. I think the band would go through and go through keyboard patches and drum sounds on the electric drum kit. I do remember the electric drum kit in the back of my brain the whole time, someone tip a tappering on, on the drum kits. It was a very interesting process, the whole thing. Well, as a producer, uh, I guess the most memorable moment was watching them go in the bubble. It was sort of like being a member of NASA and watching the three astronauts head into the, uh, the space capsule on their way to the moon. And in a way, my job was done once they were sealed hermetically into the womb or the tomb or the bubble or whatever you want to call it. That was a notable moment uh, for me personally. Throughout the filming of The Bubble, the band were joined by Channel V host and TV personality Jabba, or Jabbatron, a well-known music TV personality at the time. Jabba was responsible for hosting the daily recaps of the show, keeping the energy high, and maintaining interest in the project during its 21-day run. This is Channel V live from the Australian Centre of the Moving Image, right next to a Federation Square band in a bubble about to occur. Can we please make a call for him, people? Jabba! He is a man of the people. Welcome to this very special press conference to celebrate your entry into the bubble. A couple of us didn't really enjoy it very much at all. Uh, Jabba 
the, the Channel V guy that was in there most of the time had a bit of a nervous breakdown. And he was doing yeah. a lot of drugs on the side and, and kind of just fell apart a little bit. I think he escaped at one point, like got out through the back and didn't tell anyone. And um, yeah, I, th- I don't think it was particularly comfortable for the crew guy and um, Hugh and um, and Peter, the drummer, is not used to really. I mean, he's kind of on stage. He sits back there and then kind of enjoys himself, but doesn't really interact so much with the crowd. So it's very much like a, a much more of a kind of self-focused type job for him. Uh, so I think he felt a bit on display, particularly while he was doing that, which is almost, you know, it's a personal thing when you're in the studio. And he's very, very tough on himself in the studio. So I think that he felt each mistake he made uh, because it was on show. And so that probably made him quite awkward and, and uh, nervous about things and anxious about things. Ben and I kind of, I don't know, we're a bit more kind of open to that sort of display. And our egos are a bit more built around that enjoyment of, of being on display. So I think we kind of got more out of it and were kind of more relaxed in there as a result. Here we go. Come on in. We're inside in the, the bubble, right? This, this is the bubble. Now, you boys haven't been inside the bubble before, have you? No, this is the first time. And, uh, of course, Jabba from Channel V will be joining you, the only man with a stranger name than me on television. Jabba's made himself pretty comfortable already. I think the whole thing was maybe the birth of sort of content creation through YouTube. I don't even think YouTube was a thing in 2004. But it was, you know, content even for the digital channel because we were going 24-7 on the digital channel. So those, uh, I guess, more affluent people that had uh, Foxtel could watch and so I remember Ben created this show or maybe we did it was all of us together called Ben's World because Ben had this kind of always had this strange view on things and we decided to make a show called Ben's World and every day we would shoot this an episode of the show in a kind of clandestine sort of manner and then Channel V sort of because there's someone watching we were broadcast 24-7. So they would start editing bits of it and putting it into the daily show. So they would sort of put together a little five-minute package of what we were doing for Ben's World. So, yeah, I would try and make sure that we finished at a not too crazy an hour so that, you know, we wouldn't burn all the creative juices. I remember at the time it was quite amazing. I think people could text in to the TV show and we had monitors in there was you know, the whole back wall of the bubble. It had um, maybe 20 plasma screens on it. There was screens set up to go outside that was kind of the... Sh- the show, the 24-hour channel, and people could text into that show and we would get the texts and we could respond straight away. And I think that was the first time I know that I felt there was that sort of instant response that you get from social media, sort of a stranger making some kind of request. You could do it instantly and text back to a number or, or they would see you do it and then they would text in a response. So that kind of element was quite sort of full on at the time. It was really interesting for me to see journalists actually come and try and do interviews with us through this glass. We had like a portal where it was like a, a, an intercom system where you, you know you have to press a button and, and then talk and then the other person would have to talk and stuff. Um, so it was really interesting to watch journalists approach the thing and they all looked really, really like perturbed and, and really not sure about it. Because I think the one thing about the transparency of the project, which is kind of the overall metaphor for it, because it's glass and you see everything, you want transparency and you want to let people know what's going on behind closed doors. It's kind of like a, a sense of democratizing the process or uh, at least letting people into that process uh, in a way that they've never been before. And I think the same thing happened with the journalism that was surrounding it, which is often the case with an event. There's always this there's a circle of, of journalism that's going on at the same time and you saw the people... Unable to, you know, the, the, the interview has been seen live. It's, it's 
it's unedited. You can't curate it anyway. If you wrote down differently, you would know and you would see how it was curated or edited. And so I really like that, that aspect of it and I really appreciate it. I think that in most areas in life, there's a lot of editing and a lot of curation going on and a lot of hiding and a lot of lying and a lot of altering of the truth. And the whole idea behind this was to kind of subvert that in a way. And I think you saw it particularly in that. Would I do it again? It would really depend on the band. If it was with Regurgitator, probably, which I doubt that they would do because they weren't about sort of repeating the way they sort of made a, a record. I don't, don't think they ever have. Not sure if they ever will. Yeah, it, it, it would be difficult to do it. And like, like afterwards, I, I think I spent six months recovering. It was quite a draining process. I'd be very reticent to do it again, but, you know, never say never. And if I was going to do anything different, I would like to try and encourage more of that sort of to take more risks, you know, like in a, in a lot of ways. I don't think the, the record was amazing partly through the production process because some of the performances are a little bit more restrained. And as much as we would try and do things to create novelty, that we just didn't quite get to the same levels that we had previously. And I think it was because of that that we were being watched. There was that constant sort of audience through the process. I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. Like the whole glass bubble. Yeah, it's it, it's hard to get an artist in into that zone where where they can fully trust you and trust the process. And to have the public watching would make it very difficult. But it'd be something that I think if you could work out a way to do it, it would be very rewarding. It, it, it'd be like watching Test match cricket. It's a bit slower. You would watch the seed of an idea change, become something perhaps ugly, and then go, oh, no, that's not the right way to do it. Let's go back to the beginning, try something else, and then it'd be really good. There'd be that reward at the end of the day. There'd be that wicket where someone had been you know, chipping away, bowling the same ball over and over and eventually the ball hits a crack in the pitch and you get that wicket. We hope that through this episode of the Sounds of a Podcast, you were able to learn more in depth about or even discover this unique and fascinating flash in the Australian music scene. Innovative, bold and often culturally clairvoyant, the Band in a Bubble project's focus on pushing the envelope of reality TV through a pseudo-interactive live stream signaled a shift in the music industry towards the 21st century, ultimately paralleling a developing culture of social media and streaming. You've been listening to Sound As Ever, an Australian music vault podcast produced by RMIT music industry students Jasper Bradley, Dan Walkerton and Juan Puflo with interviews from journalism students Katie Colston, Linda Lyme and Hassam Jama, and alongside sound design by D.A. Carl.